1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies on the New Books Network. I am Jing Lee. Joining us today on the channel is Dr. Amanda Cannell, a scholar of Japanese literature at the University of Notre Dame, and also a co-host on the New Books Network Japanese Studies channel. Her new book, Alice in Japanese Wonderlands, Translation, Adaptation, Mediation, was published earlier this year through University of Hawaii Press. In this book, Amanda discusses the Japanese adaptations of Alice in Wonderland since the 20th century and how they developed throughout time in Japanese media. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, Before we jump into the book, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your research, and perhaps also your work on the New Books Network? Certainly.
0: Um, So like a lot of people, I got interested in anime when I was younger. Um, And that led me to my interest in Japanese culture. Uh, But being interested in a culture isn't the same as uh, having a job where you, you know, work and things like that. Um, It did, however, inflect my research interests. Um, I'm really interested in how media work today. And so as I started to sort of uh, try to untangle the many, many, many media that surround us today, Uh, I realized that adaptation or how stories move across different media, different time periods, uh, languages, different countries, that really gave me a good way to examine how uh, media work and how they affect us. Um, So that's sort of what led me to my first project, which wasn't really supposed to be about Alice in Wonderland at all. But there is so many Alice in Wonderland adaptations out there that in fact it's a really great way to basically use this one uh set of works to study the overall media ecosystem And um, yeah sorry no that's uh, pretty much it it's just it's really fun you know I thought I was getting into this very serious work and then I get to wander around looking at Alice in Wonderland
1: it is a very fun uh book. And now that um you're on the other side of the microphone, you you have also been a host um on our channel. How does it feel to um, well, finally be the one to be interviewed?
0: It's in some ways less nerve-wracking and in some ways more. Uh, You know, when we're uh, interviewing people, you're talking to people who are incredibly highly educated on their subjects, um, and you want to give them the best uh, opportunity you can to really show off everything they've done. Um, And yet, when you're on the other side, you kind of feel the need to live up to that. Someone's giving of their time and effort just to show off the work that you've done and help other people learn about the material that you've researched, so you've got to do your absolute best for that reason. <laughs>
1: that uh, Yeah, that, that is such a good point. And I'll make sure today to uh, give you as much time as possible to brag about the research you have done. So can you tell us about um, how you began working on this uh, book or this project? How come Alice in Wonderland um, has become such an important um, theme in your research?
0: Hmm. So when I started thinking about a book that examined how the media work in Japan today through adaptation, um, you have to think about, you know, what are your, your case studies? What are the individual chapters about? And I thought, um, you know, there, there's, there's uh interesting set of uh, materials related to Alice in Wonderland, which for whatever reason kind of surprised me. Um, why not make that one chapter? And other chapters, we're going to look at things like adaptations of the Chinese tale, A Journey to the West, uh, which you may know from Dragon Ball, if not from uh, Chinese literature. (laughs) But as I started digging deeper into it, there are so many cultural elites, if you will, you know, famous authors, famous artists who have adapted this material. There are so many media that it has been adapted into. Um, I really couldn't do justice to it in a single chapter, and on top of that, uh, my long, long ago background uh, was actually as a a pre-engineering major. Uh, I really wanted to be, uh, or I'm very drawn to more scientific modes of analysis. And so one of the things I like about Alice is that if you're trying to examine something as complicated as the entire media environment, where you have not just a diverse group of media, but you have different people, different companies making them, consuming them, you have professionally made and sold materials, but you also have amateur materials that people just, you know, you've got students drawing Uh, different characters in their notebooks in class. How do you encompass all of that? And then also add in factors like the change over time or the change from a Japanese imperial government system to a Japanese democratic government system. I really wanted to limit as many variables as I could. And just looking at this one fictional world over all of those media and all of that time, all those different people with their various interests, uh, that allowed me to really simplify the uh, irregular variables just straight out of the book.
1: Fascinating. And when I was reading your book, I was really surprised to learn that there were so many different adaptations of Alice in, in Japan. So how come it was, uh, or the this whole um, universe of Alice, how did it become so popular in Japan?
0: Slowly but steadily over time. Um, one of the things that really intrigues me about Alice is that, yes, it's super popular in Japan. And in terms of the specific, like, individual works of media, specific games, books, translations, works of art, yeah there are more of them in japan Uh, there uh, there are so many more uh, than you find in most other countries but i don't think that that indicates that alice is more popular than in all other countries what we really see in japan is the development of this style of making media where you you don't make one piece you know you make okay a manga But you, from the start, are collaborating with an anime studio that is going to make that thing that you made into a manga into an anime. And there's also probably going to be at least one video game, if not a ton of video games. Maybe there's a trading card game. There are probably professionally made costumes being sold to people who will wear them out and about as part of a practice called cosplay. Um, You you end up with... 15 media or 15 pieces for every one initial idea in japan and i say that but that style of production uh it developed earlier in japan than in other countries but we do see that with for example uh the marvel movies in america in particular uh, where you just always get a new film but also new comics and new costumes and toys and so forth we see that in england we see that in pretty much every developed nation to some degree. And that's one of the reasons why I've always liked studying media in Japan, because it gives us a a sort of idea of where media in other countries may also be headed.
1: That is really interesting and it reminded me of this um, little store in Fukuoka. When I was living in Fukuoka, um, I found this little... um, it, it's a store that sold accessory and, and some tea um, with mm-hmm. a tiny little door. And it was, yeah, it, I think it's called, called the Wonderland for Alice or something. And of course, they sold all these overpriced accessory. Um, it was a super popular place for young girls to visit um, mm-hmm. at the time. And I really didn't um, at the time, of course, I didn't know the association of um that little store with all that different adaptations of Alice in Japan. But um what were the original works of the series like? Um in the beginning when the works when a series of Alice was first introduced to Japan, what are some of the some of um the representative adaptations in um
0: in Japanese at first? Uh, some of the earliest Japanese adaptations the earliest one I've ever found is honestly fascinating um so in English we talk about Alice in Wonderland um and I think a, a fair number of people think Alice in Wonderland is the name of a book it's actually not um the first uh professionally published uh book in this fictional world that came out was entitled Alice's Adventures in Wonderland we've got several others that are in this uh group of works and they're named things like through the looking glass and what Alice found there um, or the nursery Alice nothing is named uh, Alice in Wonderland and this is kind of important in this case because the first book published in uh translation in Japan the first Alice book that is is actually that second book through the looking glass and what Alice found there um and if I don't know how many uh of the alice books you've read possibly (laughs) i certainly had to review all of them uh before i started this project um but if you're thinking of something like the disney movie uh they that squishes together alice's adventures in wonderland and through the looking glass and what alice found there it's a really common way of approaching these works uh that i think is kind of indicative of how we deal with media today. But for this first adaptation, you really have to separate it out. So this is 1899. Uh, It's a serialized novel um, called uh let's see. Uh Alice in Mirrorland? No, because they don't they call her Chi Chan instead of Alice in that one. Um, But it's by Tenke Hasagawa. And what happens in Through the Looking Glass and what Alice found there that is particularly important here is that the plot is modeled on a chess game. So Alice moves as if, at the beginning, she is a pawn in a chess game, and she eventually sort of evolves into a queen as she moves across the landscape of Looking Glass land uh, to become this queen uh, as she transforms from pawn and so forth. so this is 1899 though how many Japanese children knew anything about how to play chess right it was a very uh I want to say it was a new game in Japan I don't know even that it's fair to say it was at the status of new I'm not that up on the when exactly people started learning to play chess in Japan but certainly the kids didn't know it so the translator Hasegawa transforms this uh game within the book into a Japanese game and it works for the most part but at the end when Alice is supposed to turn into a queen you you, the the playing pieces don't transform in this game uh the game's called go they just stay as pieces throughout the game so Hasegawa gets to the point where you really can't have the novel's plot progress unless the piece which is Alice, transforms. And at that point, suddenly a traditional Japanese demon appears, chases Alice around, until she wakes up from a dream back in the real world, sitting by her sister. (laughs) It's hilarious to read the end with uh, Through the Looking Glass and what Alice found there in mind, because you get to a point, and if you've ever written not even a book, just uh, even a, a paper for school, you're looking at it and you think, oh, this is where the author just could not keep going forward, and he he needed an out, so he took it. It's that demon right there. <laughs> uh, today, the, the translations of the novel generally follow the original and uh, sort of evolution, and they refer to the ch- the game of chess rather than go. Um, but I always found it really hilarious because this is this is someone really testing their creative boundaries which is fascinating and they you know they he creates a really interesting um novel but at the same time there when I think of um people who review you know adaptation uh, film adaptations of Shakespeare or Jane Austen today I remember when Pride and Prejudice and Zombies the film came out there were some people who were scandalized at this material but if you've got a sense of humor it's really hilarious right (laughs) it's awesome why not it sounds absolutely
1: hilarious I might actually go check out that Jane Austen um, zombie movie later (laughs) but just for clarification then so the first um, introduction of Alice to Japan was an adaptation rather than a translation is that
0: correct um certainly so I tend to think of translation as just being a sort of type of adaptation because, yeah, I mean, I know you know several languages. <laughs> when when we shift things from one language to the next, no matter how much you try uh, to uh, convey everything about the, uh, the first uh, work in your translation, uh, something shifts. Um, in this case, a lot of things that are in through the looking glass and what Alice found there do get carried across to Japanese readers of the time Hasegawa was for example trying to introduce a whole bunch of foreign concepts um so Japan had largely closed itself off uh to contact with other nations for several hundred years and this changes officially the the change starts uh in I guess we, well, it depends on whether you want to go with the date uh, the dates of Commodore Perry's uh, visits to Japan or the Meiji Restoration. But let's say uh, late, middle 1800s. That's the the official date when, you know, legal aspects changed. Foreign material starts flowing into Japan and starts having an increasing influence on it in the ensuing 40, 50 years so in 1899 we've got a lot of new material scientific cultural uh that has flooded into Japan and Hasegawa wants to start introducing this to kids and raising their educational capabilities and he does that quite successfully within his translation he just knows that if you give someone out of nowhere too much new information Not only will, you know, a child not want to read it, they wouldn't understand it if they did. So he does, you know, the best he can. And like I said, it's really fun to read.
1: (laughs) So after Mm. this work, um, a lot of other adaptations slash translations were created in Japan. Um, Over the time, what are some representative ones? And um, do you observe any kind of difference or development through time in these um,
0: adaptations? Mm -hmm. Certainly. Um, So there have been more than 500 Japanese translations of the Alice novels. Uh, There are more editions of Alice in Japanese than in any other language, uh, barring English, for obvious reasons. and there are even people out there who have translated and you know published their translations of alice multiple times so i think the most uh, representative translation would probably be kimiya kusumoto's translation uh, her second one Uh, her second translation was actually done uh, upon request because of the artist yayoi kusama who wanted to do illustrations for a new edition of alice uh, which is available in English and Japanese Uh, Yayoi kusama is uh the world's most successful living female artist um and her illustrations are strikingly different from the classic john Tenniel illustrations that uh, we're all very familiar with because they're they've been out of copyright forever so that everybody pastes them on things for sale um but yoyo Kusama is very much a modern artist Uh, and so with this edition we see both a brilliant uh, translator who is reworking what she has previously done out of love of the material combining with an artist who had in fact adapted Alice in her other work many many times so the sum total of it is both strikingly original and incredibly well done
1: in the next chapter then you um shift to focus on discussion of Kusama Yayoi. um so in And you just mentioned it's more than the illustrations that uh, Kusama did for the book. So what aspects um, do you examine in the book um, of Kusama's adaptation and use of Alice?
0: One of the things I find most interesting about Yayoi Kusama is that it can be difficult to tease out specific aspects of her work that should or could be tied solely to Alice. So she first uh, adapts Alice uh, and, you know, actively says that she is adapting Alice or identifies a work of hers as an Alice adaptation in 1968. Uh, That's when she did A Happening, which is an artistic participatory event. Um, It was very popular amongst basically hippies. Um, So she does this in New York City's Central Park at the Alice in Wonderland statue there. And she identifies it as, you know, the Alice in Wonderland event in a press release that she creates for it. Kusama is a brilliant, brilliant uh, explainer of her own work. She's always been very conscientious about that. So that's the first adaptation. And um, then she goes on to create, uh, obviously, the um, illustrated edition but she's also created a number of other works that really seem to be adaptations of Alice in Wonderland as well and where she is consciously working in different tropes different materials that uh, are associated with Alice in different ways that seem to be the uh, sort of um quiet Alice adaptation where she isn't explicitly saying here's my Alice in Wonderland artwork so for example she has a, a worked with mirrors as a material since the 60s and I'm not aware of any specific mirror including work that is identified as an Alice in Wonderland piece but over time she developed what she calls Infinity mirror rooms and there are dozens of these that she's created uh now and they have been incredibly popular at museums throughout the world blockbuster exhibits if you ever get a chance to do one by the way they're really fun you think it's such a simple thing and yet it's very transporting Um, so when you get there uh, to the museum you see basically what looks like a freestanding closet usually with a long line of people coming out of it. It's not a big space, but you walk in, um, and they different infinity mirror rooms vary a bit. The one that I was able to go into, you walk up a little ramp, and you really do, it looks like you're walking into a closet, doesn't even have lights on. But the attendant then closes the door behind you, and these lights come up, and the entire room around you is mirrored such that you are moved through the looking glass that is through all of the mirrors so you're seeing yourself reflected through infinite mirrors in a way that really confuses your sense of size your sense of distance and in the case of the mirror that i or the infinity mirror room that i experienced you're actually standing on a platform above a pool of water and that strikes me as being related to an incident in the alice uh, novels referred to as the pool of tears this is when alice is growing and shrinking and having all sorts of interesting size uh confusion at one point she grows very large and is very stuck really so she sobs her eyes out and in the process manages to shrink herself back down a bit at which point she is near to drowning in the pool of her own tears as it is now so large compared to her that she's basically in an ocean it strikes me very much that this infinity mirror room it's not identified as an Alice adaptation but coming from someone who has repeatedly adapted Alice in Wonderland who has referred to it in interviews over decades has uh very much called herself uh, things like the modern Alice or the living Alice on different occasions She knows what this imagery, what these concepts tie to. And she doesn't have to identify it as Alice for that to have perhaps been somewhere in her mind or for viewers of, or experiencers, I guess, of this piece to understand it as such.
1: That's absolutely Mm -hmm. fascinating. I remember going to a Kusama Yayoi exhibition more than 10 years ago. And, and indeed the mirror room was like you say it was a tiny closet um a staff member closed the door behind me i completely did not understand um any of the concept behind it i thought it was just another mod- postmodern piece of art or something mm-hmm. but um now that i've read your book um th- this makes much more sense now mm-hmm. um moving on to the next chapter um you discuss um, how from the 20th century there have been various versions of Alice in girls and boys magazines. So uh, before we talk more about this, can you tell us about the context of girls and boys magazines or girls and boys culture Um, and perhaps also an example of a manga adaptation of Alice?
0: Certainly. So uh, with the opening of Japan to this flood of foreign culture, you see effectively Japanese adults looking at how children are viewed and how they're raised in other countries and really rethinking that. Um, so, Or rather, rethinking how they raise their children and how they're preparing their children to live in the modern world. And this... Uh, ties into the development first of uh various magazines aimed at children as readers um but then that starts subdividing you get magazines aimed at boys versus girls you get at, uh magazines aimed at very very young children where really it's the the parents reading it to the child um, and you of course also get more magazines aimed at adults of various persuasions but in particular the magazines aimed at boys and girls really come to have a uh, impressively dominant position in japanese children's culture the stories and manga that uh, run in these materials really have a huge effect on how kids see the world around them and how they understand what's going on and how they understand their own roles what it's what it is to be a young Japanese boy or a Japanese girl um now Alice's uh role in that varies a bit from time to time but uh initially uh you do see obviously Hasegawa's initial translation is run in a children's magazine you see Alice translations popping up in magazines aimed at all sorts of different audiences as Alice kind of Uh, you know, as people basically try to find a place for it. Everybody seems to like it. We see Alice translations in magazines for every age group, both genders. Um, Over time, really, I don't know that it's uh, incredibly different today in terms of which uh, group has more Alice material in their magazines. But the centrality of those magazines and the divisions that they create really can't be argued against.
1: For um, for our listeners who may not be familiar with this context of um, girls' magazine and boys' magazine or the use of Alice in them, are there any differences in the contents or in the ways that these magazines would portray Alice um, when they're appealing to different readers of either boys or girls?
0: so it depends a bit um early on the magazines were primarily running uh prose uh fiction and uh sometimes uh educational materials there's a shift to where most of the magazines today are more basically running manga uh with manga you start seeing for example um manga aimed at boys don't tend to tell us what is going on in the characters' minds as much, whereas manga aimed at girls have tons and tons of explanation about what's going on in the characters' minds. Uh, You do see Alice popping up in both types of, uh, or both uh, sort of audience groupings, magazines the difference might just be something like um you may know of uh actually a a Netflix show called Alice in Borderlands it was adapted from manga as well um that uh, the setup there is sort of um a little weird a bunch of people kind of wake up in a a different spot and find out that they are in a uh, battle to the death of sorts um so there's very much this focus on what are the rules of the game uh we need to survive to the end here. In contrast, uh, with something like uh, Kaoriyuki's Alice in Murderland manga, uh, which was run in a magazine aimed uh, at uh, female readers, younger female readers, the character who is effectively that series, Alice character. We're always hearing about kind of what what she's thinking and where, you know, she even has a sort of internal uh, ghost that she converses with about, you know, well, I think I I think I need to do this. Um, I'm so worried about, you know, this guy or what have you. So we get almost conversations, um, extended conversations that are really just happening in her head.
1: And you That's mentioned in the mm-hmm. yes, you mentioned the book that from these magazines, um, uh, there also stemmed this new or no, not new um, one of the genres were mystery or detective stories that used the theme of Alice. Can you talk more about
0: this point. Mm. So the mystery genre, uh, it shows up in Japan at this very pivotal, um, you know, turn of the last century moment. And it gets very much associated with other imported, uh, I don't want to say entirely imported concepts because one of them is logic and logic is a a thing that was understood in Japan Um, but you know the sciences and this understanding of modern life as being something we need to know more about science and technology we need to really investigate the natural world around us and how it you know doing so will effectively enable us to not be worried about say mystical ghosts but actually detect the reality that you know Mr Honda was the murderer or some such and so this is the background in which uh, mysteries initially become quite popular but over time people kind of turn back on this and say hey you know isn't isn't the whole like practice of sitting down and reading a mystery shouldn't there be some fun in that <laughs> It's not just about, like, I am learning what the natural world is really like. It's also about sitting down and reading fiction. And so you have this type of mystery that arises in the 1980s called the New Orthodox Mystery. And this mystery is officially very focused on bringing back the role of logic in mysteries, in some ways reading one of the new orthodox mysteries can seem superficially to be really bland it can be very um almost uh disruptive in the sense uh that as a reader you might think about getting immersed in a story but I've seen so many new orthodox mysteries that will actively at a certain point right before the author reveals who done it, they will have a blank page with a warning I'm going to tell you who did it after this page so don't turn the page until you've worked out for yourself who you think has done it um you can't be immersed in a book and get to something like that and just flip the page without even pausing for a moment to go oh yeah i'm reading a book and in theory i should be able to put the clues together to figure out who done it but at the same time these new orthodox authors they got into writing because they loved mysteries too and so you find a lot of fun being added into these mysteries through alice in wonderland in particular one of the most prominent new orthodox authors is a guy who his real name is masahide Uehara, but he creates a pen name arisu arisugawa which is literally alice alice river and this is very obviously a, a reference to Alice in Wonderland. But honestly, even if you don't get it in the first place, he has a little kind of a, a sigil um, that he stamps at the back of every one of his books. And it's got a little smiling Cheshire cat face. Um, so he's he really he's not trying to hide at all that this is an Alice in Wonderland reference. It's very front and center in his work. And his work also features the protagonist. Alice Alice River or Aris Ari Sugawa. Um, this protagonist is not the traditional great detective. He's also kind of funny in the sense that he just accidentally finds himself near a lot of murders, you know, as you do. Um, and he doesn't know how to solve them, not at all. But thankfully he keeps coming up against these very brilliant detectives, and he just kind of hangs out near them while they solve it. But he himself uh he thinks of himself as a writer so he takes very careful notes and then he writes it all up and supposedly uh that is the book that you are actually reading his rec- his uh memory of what actually happened around these supposedly real murders that of course never happened in reality uh, it adds a very very uh interesting fantastical angle to these mysteries when you think okay the writing here or there is kind of dry but oh it's written by someone who is actually kind of a an Alice in Wonderland creature as it were um so that's the the big I think point when Alice starts becoming really popular in uh the mystery world and we see a ton of Alice mysteries showing up Um, But this is developed over time with a type of book called the light novel. Um, I usually describe them as like the beach read. These are generally illustrated books. Uh, They are not the kind of books that you necessarily have to really uh, look up every third word to understand. But they're really fun. And uh, often they get a little more fantastical even uh, than Alice, Alice River. Um, but you do find various uh, light novel mysteries that have Alice in Wonderland as some sort of great detective or even perhaps a phantom thief of some kind. Um, and they're very fun to read. So these have been incredibly popular, especially merged with the uh, Gothic Lolita style of clothing that is also inspired in part by Alice in Wonderland.
1: Thank you. This was uh It was a very fun read and listening to explain these. Um, It's also really, it's great to be able to piece up these little things that I've seen over the years that I didn't really understand the context for. But um, um, what is it about Alice or in the original Alice that allowed Japanese authors and writers or manga artists or artists to be able to play off the theme Um, or themes from Alice and create all these various adaptations of different genres of literature or media in
0: um, what, since the 20th century. So this is one of the things that I found most fascinating in terms of less Alice in Wonderland and more the media environment today. You can find every kind of Alice adaptation out there that you want In the sense of you can find alice in wonderland as a dark horror work you can find it as a you know light and bubbly thing that you'd be happy showing any toddler wandering by you can find it for adults for children for women for men you can find alice in wonderland adaptations that don't have alice in them that don't have you know other characters like the mad hatter or that uh involve different parts of different books What you always get in all of these adaptations is liminality or this aspect of, you know, having one one foot in the real prosaic everyday world that we actually live in. And one foot in this fantastical wonderland that has, you know, talking flowers and talking cats. Actually, quite a few talking things now, I think about it. Um, So you're always kind of here, but you're never wholly here. And you're always kind of there, but you're never wholly there either. That aspect you find in all Alice adaptations. You find it in um, Yayoi Kusama's Alice uh, book, where the final illustration is really Kusama herself. But you have to really sit down and think about it before realizing is it Alice is it not Alice cuz it's kind of that too um you find this sort of here but sort of not here aspect in Alice Alice River Arisu Arisugawa um where he's the narrator of the book and he's the author of the book Um, and he has a role in real life because that author who actually wrote the book has uh, been the president of the mystery writers of japan association he has given interviews in person like he, he really exists but also he kind of doesn't because it's totally a pen name right and he's a character in a fictional book Uh, So you always have this mix of sort of there and sort of not there, this liminality. And I think that's really the key to understanding why Alice has spread or been adapted so widely in Japan. In the current media environment, if you can be adapted easily, if you can be just sort of in this adaptation, if you can just sort of be a film... then you know just enough that viewers recognize the film as being related to Alice uh, or uh, in for example the the Matrix films have been widely recognized as tied to Alice adapting Alice and yet they're called the Matrix they don't name themselves as Alice in Wonderland so they're not wholly Alice in Wonderland either the fact that Alice the the main part of it the most important part of it for adaptation is liminality is what has made it so easy to adapt and what has enabled it to spread so widely in the contemporary media environment and in turn for artists i think they find that incredibly useful i can you know really be creative i can get really free here Um, but i can also do it in a way that communicates more to people because i can invoke all these aspects of this fictional world i can invoke the idea of modernity i can invoke the idea of a lady who just walks around shouting off with their heads i can invoke that sense of danger i can invoke all sorts of things through alice but i don't have to retell the exact story that somebody else wanted to tell i can make the horror film of my dreams i can make the love story uh that i wanted to make using this material and it can be richer by adding alice but it alice isn't going to take over my work
1: fascinating Thank you so much for um, joining us on the channel. Well, your own channel as well, and for talking (laughs) about your book today. No, it's been fascinating
0: being on the other side of the microphone. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. And for listeners or fans of Alice, make sure to check out this new book, Alice in Japanese Wonderlands Translation, Adaptation, Mediation by Dr. Amanda Kennel. This is Jane Lee from New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode.